You're listening to a recent sermon from a Covenant Church worship experience. For more information, you can find us online at covenantchurch.us. Don't all religions believe pretty much the same thing? This message is from part two of our series Synonym, where we are discussing the similarities and the differences between Catholicism, Mormonism, Islam, and naturalistic relativism. And now, here is our lead pastor, Pastor Travis Davenport. Well, hey, once again, good morning and welcome to Covenant Church. We are in week two of this new series that we've entitled Synonym, and we're making the statement that we all believe the same, pretty much the same thing, right? And so this is the understanding that we're going from. And so we're, we're kind of doing a little bit of surgery. Uh, we're com- doing some comparing and some contrasting. Uh, we're talking about major world religions. And so today, just a couple things to set up this, this talk that we have today. Um, I want you to know a couple things. Number one, uh, this isn't a series where we're throwing denominations or different religions under the bus. This isn't to demean them. This isn't to tear them down make fun of them, anything like that. Um, quite the opposite. What we want to do is, is, is ask the question, do we really at the end of the day believe the same thing? Or at the end of the day, do all streams lead into one? Do we all end up in the same place? Do we all worship the same God at the end of the day? Um, that's the question that we're trying to ask. And, and so today what I'm going to be doing is I'm going to be presenting straight facts. Okay? These aren't my opinions. Um, today, as we talk about Catholicism, I'm not going to be giving you my opinions. I'm going to be giving you facts from the Roman Catholic Church as they have stated them exactly, unedited. And then I'm going to compare them uh, from um, our perspective. right? And so a couple terms that we have to come to grips with just as foundational for us this morning because a Roman Catholic would consider themselves a Christian. Um, Now, we would also consider ourselves Christians. And so, because it might get a little confusing when I I say, well, a Christian believes this, but but a Christian believes this. You can see how that could be confusing. So, for our talk today, I'm going to refer to a Roman Catholic, their point of view, their theology, as the Catholic point of view. Okay? I know, groundbreaking, right? Uh, It's Catholicism. From our point of view, I'm going to refer to us as evangelicals, okay? And so by way of just starting, by the nature of just starting, why don't we go ahead and just define um, those two terms. So number one, when we talk about Catholic, when we talk about Catholicism, what we're talking about, and this is a definition of it, Catholicism, is the faith, practice, and church order of the Roman Catholic Church. The faith, practice, and church order of the Roman Catholic Church. That is Catholic. Okay? For us, we're speaking from an evangelical point of view. Now, an evangelical is defined as this of or according to the teaching of the gospel. Of or according to the teaching of the gospel. Now, what makes Catholicism and evangelicalism a little bit difficult is that we do share a lot of similarities. There are some major similarities that we share, and I just want to kind of take a moment to kind of jump into them. The first of the similarities that we share is the Trinity. Now, this is something that we would agree on. The Trinity, of course, is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all of which are God, three in one. One of those theologies that kind of makes your brain hurt a little bit, right? Um, And we could kind of try to describe this in many ways, but... Today we won't go into that. Just understand that we share a similar view when it comes to God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the Trinity. The next is we would share a similar view on Jesus' life 
and mission. The gospel tells us, the gospels um, tell us that Jesus came to seek and save the lost, um, that Jesus was born of a virgin named Mary, um, that Jesus died and rose again. We would share in the same view of Jesus' life and Jesus' mission. Next, we would share on the authority and the importance of Scripture. Okay? We would both say that Scripture is important. We would say that Scripture is authoritative. A Catholic and an evangelical would both say that Scripture is inerrant, that it's infallible, there is no error in it, that it is literally God's truth given to man, that God speaks through His Word, that God uses His Word. We would hold very similar views. And then finally, uh, we would also hold similar views on ethics and morality. Both a Catholic and an evangelical would both say that there is good and bad. We recognize good and bad in the world. Holiness, righteousness, and also evil. Okay, So we would say there's good things, there's bad things, there's holy things, there's straight up evil things. Those are the similarities, some of the similarities that a Catholic and an evangelical hold. Okay, So for us um, today, we want to spend the rest of our time talking about now the differences. Okay. And like I mentioned, I just want to reiterate this. If you're picking this up today, um, now as a, as a podcast, if you're joining in at this point in time, welcome. We're glad to have you. Um, but also, I just want to say this. We're just presenting facts as is. And then we're going to draw some conclusions. Okay? So let's talk about the differences. Number one, when we talk about a Catholic or Roman Catholicism, one of their major things that they hold to is Scripture, as I mentioned, and Tradition. Now, why is this important? Well, it's scripture and tradition. Um, they would say that scripture, we would, we would agree, scripture is authoritative, it's infallible, like I mentioned, it is God's word. But tradition has the same merit and also has the same authority level as scripture itself. Now, what are traditions? What, are, what is tradition? Well, it might be things like the Eucharist. It might be, you know, uh, it might be things like confession, um, worship of, of whatever. Uh, there's a whole lot of traditions. But whatever those traditions are, they are as authoritative. They are as infallible. They are as inerrant as Scripture itself. You understand? You dig? All right? So those are uh, the things that they would hold to. In fact, one of the traditions... Um, Early on in Roman Catholicism, one of the traditions that was put out as infallible was that Scripture was not to be read by laymen. Um, you know, you couldn't play it on CD, anything like that. Um, until the 1300s, when a man came along who saw this as wrong, his name was John Wycliffe. Uh, not to be confused with Wycliffe John, okay? Um, the beats that John Wycliffe dropped were not as heavy as, as Wycliffe John's, yeah. Um, so what John Wycliffe did was he kind of changed the game. He felt that modern man needed, to, needed a modern translation. They, they should be able to read their Bible in English. He believed that they should be able to read God's word for, for, their, for their own, on their own. And um, he felt that biblical truth was important to individuals. So he began translating the Bible from Latin into English. Okay? Now he died while he was doing this, and he had some people that took up after him and completed the work. Um, those people were then charged with heresy by the church, and the church actually executed them, um, sent men to go and, and captured them, burned them alive at the stake, at which time they also called John Wycliffe, who was, who was dead, buried, a heretic. They went to his gravesite. The church dug up his bones, pulled his head off the skeleton, burned the bones, and then dumped his bones, the ashes rather, into the water. Um, why would they do this? Well, because to a Catholic, you would see that scripture and tradition 
are authoritative. So it's not just scripture, but it's also how we go about living out the tradition as authoritative. Now, compare that to an evangelical, and we would use this word, sola scriptura. Would you say it with me? Sola scriptura. Now, just once on your own, let me hear you say it. Sola. This means God's word alone. So an evangelical would say God's word alone is enough. Apart from tradition, apart from musical style or taste, anything like that, even apart from what a pastor says, the Bible alone is sufficient in its authority. The understanding is that if you are on a deserted island and you happen to have a Bible wash up on shore and you'd never heard of Jesus, you'd never heard of God, you'd never even heard of the Bible, one should be able to pick up that Bible and just by reading it, you should be able to enter into a relationship with Jesus, have purpose for your life, understand how the world was created, how the world's going to end, and the Holy Spirit working and moving through you. You don't need traditions, you don't need people, you only need God's word. Why? Sola Scriptura. But God's word is authoritative in and of itself. Well, why do we say this? Well, we actually pull this from Scripture itself. 2 Timothy chapter 3, starting verse 15 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching. So we see it's profitable for teaching. Then it says, For reproof. For reproof. And correction. And correction. And for training. And training. And righteousness. And here's the word. Here's the line that's important. That the man of God may be. And what's that word? complete. Now, from an evangelical perspective, if God's word and just reading God's word can make you complete, what more can you add on to something that is already completed? Nothing. So we would say sola scriptura. God's word is enough to complete a man, equipped for every good work. The first of many differences that we have, sola scriptura. Next, the next difference that we would have is when we talk about the head of the church, now, to a Roman Catholic, or just a Catholic in general, when we talk about the head of the church, they would acknowledge that the head of the church is the Pope. Now, this is not a picture of the most recent Pope, but this is a picture of the Pope um, uh, from the past. And here he is, he's waving, he's saying hello. And uh, so they would see that the, the, the Pope is authoritative, and he's actually the leader, more than the leader, he's the head of the church, all of the churches. Now, where do they get this from? Um, well, they actually pull this from Scripture. In a passage in Matthew chapter 16 where we see Jesus Christ having a discussion with Peter. Remember Peter? I like Peter. Peter is kind of like that guy um, who I, I, I imagine he's a little rotund, right? Can we use that word? A little rotund, right? He doesn't necessarily watch all that he eats. He's kind of an emotional eater, you know what I mean? Um, when he's happy, he eats some ho-hos and, you know, he's always got a bag of Doritos. Anyway, he's really loud. He's, he's kind of the guy that you want to take to the football game with, but at the end, if you lose, you're scared he's going to punch somebody and make you look like a fool, right? That's Peter, kind of a good buddy to have. So Peter and Jesus are having a conversation, and this is where um, Roman Catholicism pulls the fact that a pope is instituted. Now look at this. Jesus says, and I tell you, you are Peter. Peter's like, thank you, right? And he says, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now let's explain that. Now, what you have to understand about Peter is his name um, is actually Petros, okay? We say Peter, his name was Petros. Petros means rock. And so a Catholic theologian would say, well, Jesus plainly is saying here, you are Petros, you are the rock, and on you I will build my church. To the Roman Catholic Church, Peter is the first pope. Peter is the first pope, and they would see Jesus Christ as anointing Peter or as giving him authority to lead the entire movement of 
the church. That the church is built on Peter, the Pope. The church is built on the papacy. And not only that, but they are, that he is rather the head of the church. You understand? Very important to them. This is a very um, strong theological scripture for a Roman Catholic. Um, now, what's interesting about this is now popes have said some very strong things which are, are um, to, to a Catholic infallible, okay? which are utter truth. They would hold what the pope says in um, the same light as what scripture says. You understand? It's very, very important that we understand that when, when the Pope says what I'm going to say is infallible, what he's saying is that it is equal to Scripture. Okay? Um, it is special revelation. Pope Pius the, the Ninth, he says this, I alone, despite my unworthiness, am the successor of the apostles, the vicar of Jesus Christ. Now, what's that mean? Pause. What's that mean? Vicar of Jesus Christ means I am the substitution for Jesus on earth. I am the fleshly embodiment of Jesus Christ, the vicar. I am Jesus on this earth, okay? The vicar of Jesus Christ. And he goes on, the Pope says, I alone have the mission to guide and direct the bark of Peter. What is that? Well, like I said, I, I brought this straight over from, from a Catholic document. Bark is actually in, uh, correct, it's incorrectly spelled there. It should be B-A-R-Q-U-E, and a bark is a boat, Okay? So when a Catholic individual says the bark of Peter, they're referring to the fact that Peter was actually a fisherman, and so he would, he would, you know, he would have been steering his bark, his ship. They would see the, the church as the ship of Peter, and so Peter steers it, but now the Pope is the direct, you know, his, his goal, his mission, he has the power to guide the ship of the church. Does that make sense? Um, best way that we can explain it quickly here. So he says, the Pope says, I alone have the mission to guide and direct the bark of Peter. And then he actually goes on to say this. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Now, how can he make a claim like this? Well, previously, who made this claim? Jesus. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then he says, no man comes to the Father except through me being Jesus Christ. But the Pope views himself as the vicar of Christ, the representation, the, the fleshly embodiment of Jesus. So he has no problem saying, now I am, as the Pope, the way, the truth, and the life. And then he goes on to say, those who are with me are with the church. That means they have salvation. And he says, those who are not with me are out of the church, which means they have no salvation. This is an infallibility from one of the popes believed by the Roman Catholic Church and carried out by all popes since. Um, in fact, it's reinforced with the New York Catechism, which is dogma, which means biblical law or church law or church truth. It goes on to say, the pope takes the place of Jesus on earth. By divine right, the pope has supreme and full power in faith and morals over each and every pastor and his flock. Which pastor and which flock? Every church. The word Catholic, literally, at its earliest um, understanding of the word, means universal. Catholic church, universal truth, uh, universal church, rather. So the Pope would see himself as in authority to every church, whether they are Catholic or not. Understand? So they would see that, that even a church like us, who are not Catholic, they would say that the Father, um, the Pope, is actually over um, in authority to all churches. Okay, let's just keep going. Um, he is the true vicar of Christ, the head of the entire church, the father and teacher of all Christians. He is the infallible ruler without error. And what he says when he says it's infallible is equal to Scripture. The founder of dogmas, which is church 
uh, church truth, church law, the author and the judge of councils, the universal ruler of truth, the Pope now, is the arbiter of the world, the supreme judge of heaven and earth, the judge of all, being judged by one, God himself on earth. So you can see that this is, this is a really strong position, right, to take. Um, the Pope is very, in the least, very important to the Roman Catholic Church. He is the head of the church. Let's, let's see a couple of these dogmas. Let's see a couple of these infallible truths um, that have, ha have been spoken by popes throughout the ages. Um, we'll start out. We won't cover them all. Um, but we see in 300 A.D., the church, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, that we see the church baptizing babies. Why did they do this? Well, this was confirmed by the church. Um, they were baptizing babies because they believed that if a baby died um, before he or she was baptized, he or she, the baby, would go to limbo. Not heaven, not hell, not even purgatory, but a fourth place called limbo, where you're just kind of in a state of in between everything, right? And so the idea was that the, um, at the time the church would confirm and say, and later popes would as well, they would say that uh, baptizing a child washes away original sin and kind of introduces them into the Christian faith. Um, it saves them. Um, now what's interesting is about uh, three, four years ago, the church came out on this, on this dogma and actually refuted the dogma and said that um, limbo for babies no longer exists. In fact, limbo doesn't exist at all. And whether or not a child is baptized doesn't bear any significance on whether they go to heaven or not. Um, but now they would say that limbo doesn't exist and if a baby dies, he or she is just taken straight to heaven, okay? So they refuted the infallibility. Um, in 310 AD, we see prayers for the dead. In 431 AD, uh, we see the worship of Mary. And this is a very strong uh, stance here from a Catholic point of view. We won't take too much time because we're going to talk about Mary in just a little bit. Um, but the understanding is at this point in time, in 431 AD, um, the church was... Um, the church was told that they were to uh, start calling Mary Holy Mother, okay? So Holy Mother. Now, depending on who you talk to, what kind of strain of Catholic you talk with, um, there's different levels of adherence to this. All, all, obviously, all Catholics pray um, to Mary. They would ask her for help. Um, obviously, the Hail Mary, full of grace, you know, that prayer, um, they, would, they would cling to that. They see Mary as an intercessor and a mediator between God and man. They call her holy. They call her a saint. Um, yeah, we're going to talk about that a little more later, but it wasn't until 431 A.D. that this came across as something that was universal. Uh, in 593 A.D., we see the uh, initiation of purgatory. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Lots to talk about there. In 995 A.D., we see the canonization of saints. Uh, in, in, in 1190 A.D., we see the sale of indulgences become dogma. Now, what is, what is that? Let me briefly explain the sale of indulgences, because that might be something you've never heard of. And it also has to do with purgatory, okay? And it also has to do with sin. We're going to explain purgatory a little bit more in a moment. But just so you understand, purgatory, uh, like and unlike limbo, is, a, is not heaven, it's not hell, it's somewhere in between, okay? And it's where you go to pay off your sin so that you can go to heaven, okay? So you die with sin, um, and if you have those sins, you'll, you'll spend a certain amount of time in purgatory. Now, anyway, indulgences, the sale of indulgences in 1190 um, A.D. meant that you could kind of pay forward money to take time off of the time you spend in purgatory, okay? So say you die with a certain number of sins, if you make like a down payment on your sin, 
um, this is this is the this would be the verbiage that they would use. If you make a down payment or or um, purchase indulgences, then it will take off time for sin. And there was kind of a running commentary, kind of a joke at that time between priests and laymen that sales of indulgences were also good for this life because they would allot you a certain amount of grace to be had when you sin. So you could actually pay for an indulgence, go out and sin, and that sin is already bought, paid for, and forgiven. Okay, understand? So it's for the now. It's also for the later. The sales of indulgences allowed um, the, the, the Catholic Church to build massive structures around the world. <clears throat> Temples, I'm sorry, uh, churches. Um, and parishes and employ a lot of people because as you can imagine everybody and their brother went out and purchased indulgences because ain't nobody wants to spend a lot of time in the afterlife outside of heaven okay and so they saw this as a way that they could make that happen faster in 1215 AD we see the confession the dogma of confession coming in this is where you go to a priest a father confess your sins uh, from which point he will then tell you, um, okay, you need to go do this, do this many Hail Marys, count the rosary this many times, go out and, and you know, do this, purchase some indulgences, whatever it might be, and then you would be forgiven of your sins. Uh, in 1229, as we referenced before, 1229 A.D., we see the Bible forbidden to laymen. It's in Latin, the Vulgate. We see it chained to the pulpit. You could not take it home. If you did, considered heresy. Uh, in 1854 A.D., we see the Immaculate Conception as being something that the Pope uh, deemed as dogma. Now, let me explain this, because we agree on a couple things with Mary. Number one, we agree that Mary was a person, okay? A strong, strong similarity there. Um, number two, we would agree that Mary was the mother of Jesus. Number three, we would also affirm and agree that Mary was a virgin uh, when she had Jesus. Why do we come to these three similarities as evangelicals? Well, number one, Scripture says that Mary existed. Number two, Scripture tells us that Mary was the mother of Jesus. And number three, Scripture tells us that Mary was a virgin. That's why we believe those things. Um, but the, the Catholic Church would add something else. The Immaculate Conception, this is where we deviate, where they deviate from a theological standpoint that an evangelical would hold. Okay? Because they would say that while Mary was, also, was a virgin, she also was sinless. Okay? Just like Jesus was sinless, Mary was sinless for the duration of her life. And not only Mary, but Mary's mother uh, was sinless. Her name was Anne, and she's a saint. So Saint Anne and Mary were sinless. Um, now, where it gets a little bit complicated is the fact that Scripture tells us that Jesus did have, have, um, have you know, family, brother, brothers. Um, and so there's, it's, it's a little bit difficult, and it depends on who you talk to about this. When you ask them about Mary, because you would say, now were those Joseph, Joseph's kids? Like at any time, did Joseph father babies? You know what I mean? Or was, was it like, you know, like the Holy Spirit all the time? And uh, so one view held by the Catholic Church or some in it would be like, no, Mary was a perpetual virgin. That any of the children that were, burned to her, were birthed to her were actually born out of the Spirit. Make sense? The other view would be like, um, no, she was a virgin her whole life and sinless, and so those weren't actually Jesus's blood brothers, right? Either way, they hold to the fact that Mary was a perpetual virgin and perpetually sinless, which would make for one really difficult marriage, okay? We'll just say that. In 1870, we see AD, we see papal infallibility. 
This is where the church actually puts it into church dogma that when the Pope speaks, what he, when he says what I'm going to tell you is infallible, is actually as authoritative and without error as Scripture itself. Okay? Now, let's contrast this, or let's compare this rather, with, um, with an evangelical view of the head of the church. Quite simply, when it comes to evangelicalism, we see the head of the church as Jesus. Why do we see this? Well, we pull this from a couple of scriptures. Um, number one, Colossians 1 says that he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. This is Jesus. And so, like, even if you show up to the scene first, Jesus is before the first, right? He's pre-first. You can't beat Jesus somebody somewhere. Even if you show up there, he's already been there. Like, hey, I got here first. Well, I'm before first, so I'm Jesus. I, I always win, right? And so this is Jesus. He's the head of the body. He's the church. Um, other scriptures, like Ephesians chapter 5, say, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is, though, there's that word again, head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Once again, in Ephesians chapter 1, it says, And he put all things under his feet, Jesus' feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church. So we see Jesus as the head of the church. Now, let's examine just really briefly here this passage in Matthew chapter 16, where the Roman Catholic Church would say, No, this is clearly a place where Jesus hands over authority as the head and leader of the church to the first pope being Peter, namely Peter. Okay? Because if you read it here, you would, you would think, Wow, this is, they, they have a strong case. The problem is, when you come from a perspective and a theology that holds Scripture as authoritative, you can't read things into the text. You have to read it rather in context of the Scripture. I would never admonish you to go and just pull out one verse and say, this is my life verse, I run with this, I go with this, because it may be a part of a larger section that really has nothing to do with what you've attributed it to. Right? Such is the case here. If we read this verse in context, what we see is a completely different understanding of the verse. Matthew chapter 16, starting in verse 13, says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Hey, who do people say that the Son of Man is? That's himself. Some say, and they said, the disciples said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah as one of the prophets. He said to them, Okay, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, pause, of course, Simon Peter replied, the rotund Dorito-eating Buckeye fan, Simon Peter, stands up and say, and you can just imagine him wiping the Cheetos off his face, you're the Christ, right? He says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And you can just imagine Jesus with like this huge grin, right? And he says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And then we read this verse. And I tell you, you're Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So the real question is, what is the rock? On this rock I will build my church. What is the rock? There's two rocks here. Number one, it's alluding to the truth that Simon Peter had just made. What's the truth? It's found in the question and the answer. Who do people say that I am? They say that you are this. They say that you're this. Who do you say that I am? I say that you're the Son of God. I say you're the Messiah. Peter, that's correct. And on that truth, I will build my church. Who is the church built on? Jesus. And we can make this understanding, this claim, because all of Scripture contextually backs up this claim that Jesus is the head of the church. And it's interesting that it does talk about the rock. Why? Because in Scripture, Jesus is often called the rock. He's called the cornerstone. 
He's prophetic, he's, he's prophesied rather to be the cornerstone that the builders would reject. But rather that, that stone that the builders reject becomes the cornerstone, the very foundation. So by a very nature of scripture itself, we see that Jesus is defined as the rock that the church is built on. So it should be no different here as we read the scripture um, just because Peter is having a conversation with Jesus. Um, so we see that Jesus is something that the gates of hell cannot prevail against. We see that on Jesus that our church is built. This makes sense because he is the rock on which it's built. So we would differ there. Let's talk about salvation in light of Catholicism. To a Catholic, and I want to give them uh, grace here because they do um, believe in Jesus Christ. They believe that you are saved by faith. But that's not all they believe in. They would also believe in works. <clears throat> in fact, Works are very, very important. That's why you have this picture of this man, because salvation is really dependent upon you. Um, one of the verses that they, uh, a Catholic would really use to prove this point is Matthew 24, 13, where it says, But the one who endures to the end will be saved. This is a pretty important verse to them. The one who endures to the end will be saved. Why is this so important? Well, because it, it kind of doesn't matter um, what you do with your life. If at the end of your life you sin or commit a certain sin, you will die and go to hell. Okay? And, uh, well, but first off, we see salvation comes through baptism. Salvation through baptism and continued works. You follow me? So salvation comes when you're baptized, but then it's held on to through your continued good works. Now, if you commit, there's two different types of sins, and if you commit a mortal sin, um, it's, that's, that's considered a grave sin. Okay? Now, if you, if you die while committing a mortal sin, you will die and go to hell. No questions asked. If you die, um, you've committed a mortal sin and you die without confessing that mortal sin and paying your penance, equally you will go to hell. You can go and you can confess your sin and pay penance, um, go through any number of Hail Marys and count the rosary, and then that sin will be forgiven. However, a loss of salvation happens through mortal sins. Now, there's also venial sins. Venial sins are sins that aren't mortal sins. Um, they're smaller sins. They won't send you to hell. They will send you to purgatory where you can be cleansed of them. A mortal sin would be like you stub your toe when you drop a certain word, right? Venial sin. A venial sin is when you're driving in traffic, you cut somebody off, and, and maybe you give them a nice uh, hand signal, right? That's, that's not a mortal sin, and if you die doing that, um, you won't go to hell. You will go to purgatory. So the list of mortal sins is very important. There's many of them. Here's a list of just a few um, mortal sins. If you die um, while committing any of these or die before you commit, I'm sorry, confess any of these, these will send you to hell. Um, a couple of them we see lying, we see idolatry, fornication, hatred, extreme anger, um, extortion, uh, contraception. Um, if you, yeah, if you, if you use any type of anything to uh, not have children, uh, that will send you to hell. Atheism. Yep, so there's a list of mortal sins. Now, let's contrast that, compare that with um, an evangelical. An evangelical, once again, sorry this is so boring on our side, is just about Jesus. Um, just, just Jesus alone um, and faith in Jesus Christ. Now, where do we pull this? Well, we pull this from Scripture, once again. Romans 10 says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It doesn't say can be, could be, would be. It says will be. They shall be. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. No ifs, ands, or buts. Moves on to Ephesians 2 where it says, for, great, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one should boast. 
We see that salvation is through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And here's the cool part. Even the faith that you have to accept Jesus isn't faith that you have on your own. It's faith that God gives you to have faith in him. And that faith that God gives you is grace of Jesus Christ. It's, it's through the grace of Jesus Christ. So it's only by Jesus Christ that we can be saved by Jesus Christ and be held in salvation with Jesus Christ. You can't boast about it, no matter how good you are, because you're not. Romans chapter 10 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you, once again, here it is, this strong statement, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Now, it's interesting here we don't read, if you confess with your mouth and get baptized in the water, you will be saved. Right? We don't see baptism as linked to salvation. I want to be very upfront about that. Now, baptism is important. It's the next step in obedience. Um, but you say, whoa, 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 I thought you had to be baptized to go to heaven. Well, I would, I would encourage you to read passages of Scripture, um, namely where a man on a cross is nailed next to Jesus and said, you are the Son of God. You're the Christ, right? And he's like, surely, you've said it. I'll see you in paradise. And the man's like, okay, awesome, right? What you don't see is like Jesus in the moment like, hey, everybody, Get some water up here. Take this guy down. We need to baptize him. The guy dies. He doesn't get baptized, right? And so we see this promise from Jesus carrying out. Now, if you, if you ask a, a Catholic theologian about this, you would say, well, how come that happened? And they would say, well, Jesus is allowed to do what he wants, right? And so Jesus is allowed to let things like that in Scripture slide. The problem is with that understanding is that Jesus is defined as the truth. The truth, by definition, doesn't let things slide, it is the truth. The truth cannot be the untruth. You understand? And so what Jesus does has to be the truth. If it's the truth for one, it has to be the truth for everybody. Important to understand that. Um, so we just see salvation as believing, once again, with faith in Jesus Christ. Next, sin and death. We're going to move through this one quickly. Um, we would affirm with them that there is sin and that people do die. So we're in agreement on that. But where people end up is a little bit different, obviously. Um, it's, and to a Catholic point of view, it's very dependent on man. Um, they go to one of three places. Number one, you can go to heaven when you die. Um, if you've done good things, if you've purchased indulgences, if you've gone through the seven um, sacraments, if you've um, confessed your sins, if you've lived a relatively good life, you will go to heaven. If you have not, if you commit a mortal sin or do not confess your mortal sins, or are not you know, Catholic in general and follow uh, Christ, you will go to hell, um, or most likely you will end up in purgatory. Now, let me explain this really quickly to you. Purgatory, I have the, the cash money symbol up there, um, and there's a reason, because purgatory is where you go to pay off your sin. But it's also a place that you can make a payment to get out of. Okay? And I mentioned indulgences, but after you die... Um, your family can pay a certain amount of money and purchase uh, from, from the church what's called a high mass. And if your family attends high mass and, and holds a prayer vigil for you, it will take time off of your sentence in purgatory post-mortem. Okay? Um, or you can set up a fund where your, where your money post-mortem goes to the church, and this will take time off of your time in purgatory um, because all purgatory is is a place where you are being cleansed of your sin to the point where you are sin-free um, so that you can now go to heaven. Okay? That's what purgatory is. It's not heaven. It's not hell. It's just in between. Um, let's compare that with Christianity. Once again, sin and death, we see this is covered by Jesus Christ. Um, Jesus Christ, we see his blood as sufficient to cover our sins, um, not our works. 
Um, in fact, Scripture would tell us that even our best works are like filthy rags. They're like trash, right? So how could our trash purchase sinless freedom? Um, they can't. They can't. Scripturally speaking, from an evangelical point of view, they can't. So sin and death are covered by Jesus Christ. Um, and we see if you believe in Jesus Christ and you've been saved, then his blood covers you, right? Um, and you are saved. So when you die, you go to heaven. If you decide that you do not want to follow Jesus Christ, then when you die, you go to hell. There is no middle ground. There's no in-between. There is no second chance. Um, we believe that Jesus pursues you your entire life and offers you opportunities to respond to the Holy Spirit. Okay? And if you choose not to do that, then you go, you go to hell. Pretty straightforward, right? What you have to understand, though, about God is that God does not desire for you to go to hell. God doesn't desire for anyone to go to, go to hell. In fact, Scripture tells us that God's desire is that none should perish, but that all should come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. So the fact that people go to hell isn't because God's like mad at them, like, well, you're going to hell. I don't like what you said. I don't, I don't like you anymore. You're just going to hell. Now, the very fact of the matter is that Jesus desires for all of us. God desires for all of us to be in heaven, to be covered by the saving blood of Jesus. But if you choose to not follow Jesus Christ, then by definition, you cannot be saved. Why? Because you are sinful. No amount of works can work that out. Only Jesus' blood can be sufficient in covering for your sins. Understand? Okay. It's a pretty important point. Um, so it wouldn't matter even if there were a purgatory to an evangelical, like that doesn't even fit into our worldview, into our theological worldview, because even if you could, could go to a place and be cleansed of your sins, that would be making your works more sufficient than Jesus' blood. And so we would say, no, 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 Jesus' blood is just in and of itself the definition of sufficient. It is good enough. It is better than any works. Like even if I could work things off, Jesus' blood is more proficient at covering my sins. Um, Jesus mentions heaven 32 times in Scripture, uh, in the Bible. Scripture itself as a whole mentions he heaven over 500 times. Uh, Jesus talks about hell specifically 12 times in, in, in his lifespan in Scripture. Scripture itself as a whole mentions uh, hell 54 times. Uh, when it comes to purgatory, Jesus mentions purgatory zero times. Scripture mentions purgatory also zero times. And so, once again, going back to this understanding of the Bible being authoritative and sola scriptura, you will not find purgatory in an evangelical uh, worldview, doctrine, or theology because by the definition of sola scriptura, purgatory is not in it. So then we would not hold to it. Next, and lastly, we see prayer. <clears throat> now, this is a big piece, right? Prayer, very, very important. Um, we see that um, there's three modes here. Um, but I want to I do my due diligence because as a Catholic, you can go to Jesus directly. You can go to a pre, I'm sorry, you can go to God directly. You can confess your sins to God. You can talk with God. You can talk with Jesus as, as, a, as a Catholic, okay? So I want to say that up front. However, as much as you are encouraged to, to do that, when you sin, you are encouraged to go and confess your sins to a priest. I already told you this, um, to a father, to a priest. Um, I want to let you know, I'm, I am not a, I am a father, but I'm, I'm a father to my children, my kids, like, because my wife gave birth to them, okay? Um, I'm not a father um, in, in the eyes of Scripture. Um, we would say that there is only one father, that's God, okay? In fact, Scripture tells us that, but we'll get into that in our comparison here. Um, but to a priest, um, they would be called a father, they'd be called a priest. 
uh, and so you go to them and you confess, like I said. And anyway, the idea is that they are a better mediator. They're, they're a better intercessor. They are a good intercessor, a mediator between you and God, and they will give you the payment that needs to be made to cover the sins. A couple venial sins, maybe a couple mortal sins. Okay, go do some Hail Marys. Go do uh, a, a couple of the rosaries. Go do, you know, whatever it might be. But they will give you what you need to do to make up and atone for the sin that you committed. Understand? So they're a mediator between God and man. Next we have saints. Uh, St. Mary is one of them. St. Francis is one of them. St. Nicholas. Um, there's, there's hundreds, right, if not thousands. A saint is a person who lived a holy life and then died and then was canonized as a saint. Now, you're encouraged as a Catholic to pray to saints for a number of reasons. Number one, once again, they are a mediator between God and man. And so they will take your prayers and take them to God, and it will be more beneficial to pray to them, and they will go to God on your behalf. Okay, so they're dead, and they'll go to God on your behalf as as somebody who, who's a saint. Um, <clears throat> many saints to pray for for different things. They all kind of have like their own niches, right? Um, so, and this isn't in any way to to make fun of or anything like that. Just want to give you a clear example. Um, if if you lose something, so say you lose your keys, say you lose your wallet. Um, if you're like my wife, every day you've lost your phone. Okay, just <laughs> in general, you lose something. Um, it would be more uh, productive for you to go and pray to St. Anthony. St. Anthony is the saint that helps you find lost things, okay? So you would pray to St. Anthony, and you would pray like this. You'd say, St. Anthony, would you help me in finding my keys, my wallet, my child, whatever, whatever it is you lost, right? Um, and then upon finding that thing, you would then thank. You would pray, and you would thank St. Anthony for his help. Make sense? And so there's different prayers. If you need prayer for depression, there's a saint for that. If you need prayer for wealth, there's a, there's a saint for that. If you have a problem with overeating, there's a saint for that, right? So um, there's different saints for different things, and you pray to them because they are a mediator between God and man. And lastly, we have Mary. We've already talked about Mary. And if you, this is a very sensitive issue for a lot of Catholics because um, it depends on who you ask. They wouldn't say you worship Mary. However, Mary is set apart from priests. Mary is set apart from saints, although she is a saint. They would call her the Holy Mother, sinless and a virgin, Jesus' mother, right? And so we are to pray to Mary, and when we pray to Mary, we ask her for help. Now, they wouldn't call Mary a goddess. Some would, um, and one of the reasons why is because one of the separating factors for Mary is that Mary can grant you salvation, Okay. And so if you pray to Mary, she can, out of her grace and mercy, can grant you salvation if all is lost. Mary can cut back your time in purgatory. I don't know if I mentioned this previously or not, but um, you, can, you can purchase a, a little strap of leather and it has Mary's picture on it. If you carry that with you at all times, if you die while carrying that with you, a lot of times a Catholic will have that around his neck or her neck and maybe in their wallet because when they die, if you present that piece of leather post-mortem, you as a dead individual, present that at the gates of purgatory, that will get you out of purgatory faster, okay? And so in the, in the Catholic worldview, theology. And so Mary is to be prayed to because she is the greatest intercessor apart from Jesus. He, she is a great mediator, especially to Jesus because she's Jesus' mom, right? And so we pray to Mary. We ask her for help. That's the view. Uh, to an evangelical, we would see things a little bit differently. Um, prayer, once again, just straight Jesus Christ. Uh, we pray to Jesus, um, to God the Father. God and Jesus are one. 
So we see talking to Jesus as talking to God. And it's interesting, too, um, because while these other people in a Catholic tradition are mediators, we see in Scripture once again, 1 Timothy 2.5, where it says, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So while maybe there might be other mediators in the Catholic faith, we would say there's no need. Scripture says there's only one. So we would say that if, if you are praying to a saint... <clears throat> who is a person who has died, from a Christian, I'm sorry, from an evangelical point of view, we would say you're, you're praying to a dead person that has no more power than you, okay? You are pa- praying to a grave. You're praying to somebody who is not Jesus, therefore there's no power in that prayer. And it can get a little bit dicey and a little bit strong language if you say that about Mary as well. Because an evangelical worldview is that Mary was a sinner, She was a sinner. God chose her to use her, but she was filled with sin. She sinned just like you and I. She was not different than you and I, uh, that she died a sinner, and that Mary was only saved from going to hell because she believed that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. Understand? And so we would not pray to Mary, yet we would pray to her son. Why? Because he's the son of God, and Scripture tells us there's one mediator also. We see in Scripture that at one time there were high priests. What was the job of these priests? What was the function? Well, these priests, their their job was to make atonement, to make sacrifices to cover sin. But then Jesus shows up on the scene, and he's like, hey, guys, you don't have to sacrifice animals anymore. You're going to have to continually do that day after day. Scripture says that all the time the the, the temples were filled, and, and the priests were standing in attention. Their hands were bloody at all times until Jesus shows up. Because when Jesus shows up, what, what, what happens? Well, he dies. Why? Because he's the perfect sacrifice, which makes him the perfect high priest. Jesus says, I'm a better high priest. You don't need to be priest anymore. So you will not find priests in, in an evangelical situation. You will find pastors, um, which doesn't mean priest. <laughs> it, it means shepherd, actually. Okay? Um, it, it means somebody who's going to lead uh, a, a local organization, church. Right? But they're not the head of the church. Um, only Jesus Christ is, okay? And uh, that's, that's our view. And so you can see that while there are, are some similarities, the differences between an evangelical and a Catholic are vast, right? And you, you can really get that picture in here. While we do believe some of the same things, it, it's true. We, we cannot say that we all believe the same things about everything. Um, and, and if you look, it's very interesting, too, Uh, Just along the timeline of the Catholic, you can see man, 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 people. And over here we see scripture, Jesus, 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 Jesus. And it's it's reflected this way. And remember, um, this is an unbiased view. This is just me presenting facts. This is what the facts are. When you build your church on Jesus Christ, everything flows through him. Okay? When you build the church on a man... Everything flows from him as well, okay? So we might have some similarities, but let's come to some conclusions. Not, not um, unbiasedly, anything like that. Let's just come to some conclusions here based off of what we've learned today. Number one, first conclusion. Catholicism is a religion that holds man-made traditions as equal to God's word. Next, a religion not led by Jesus alone, but equally, that's a big word, equally, led by a man who believes himself to be the embodiment of Christ on earth, who can speak infallible, special revelation from God that is as authoritative as Scripture itself. 
A religion where works are counted more sufficient, if that's a thing, more sufficient than Jesus' blood. <clears throat> Lastly, a religion where if enough works are done throughout your life in the right place, at the right time, especially at the end of your life, then hell can be avoided through purgatory, where after being cleansed of any remaining sin, you can then enter into heaven. Just want to reiterate this point. This is a large point for salvation for a Catholic. That means if you're driving in your car and you go off a cliff in Ohio, I don't know, but if you drive off the side of a cliff and you take the Lord's name in vain, if you had been pure up until that point from a Catholic point of view, when you hit the ground, you are going to go to hell. From an evangelical point of view, um, when you hit the ground, if, if you know Jesus Christ, your sins are already forgiven, and that's not a question. It's a, it's a view of forgiveness. We, uh, an evangelical would view forgiveness as a lot larger and more sufficient, uh, sufficient to saving. We believe that when you accept Christ, he forgives all of your past sins, your current sins, and your future sins. All are forgiven under the blood of Jesus Christ. Okay? It's a different view. Uh, let's draw some conclusions um, in terms of an evangelical stance. Okay? Here's the conclusions that we draw from what we talked about today. Number one, evangelicals are a people. Notice that it doesn't say religion. Evangelicals are a people that believe God and his word to be the source of all authority for their lives. A people not ruled by a man, but freed by the Son of God, who came to bring love, hope, redemption, salvation, and my favorite word, freedom from sin. I like that conclusion. A people that recognize man's inability to get to God through works. Therefore, evangelicalism hinges and is founded on the grace of Jesus Christ and the saving nature of the gospel. And lastly, a people who see bringing glory to God, having a personal relationship with Jesus, and spreading the gospel as the goals of one's life, not the attainment of heaven as the single goal. Conclusions we can draw about being an evangelical. So, synonym. <laughs> we all believe pretty much the same thing, right? No. listening to this message from part two of our series Synonym at Covenant Church. We hope you've been encouraged by what you've heard today. Visit us online at covenantchurch.us where you can invest in life change through giving or find more impactful sermon audio just like this.